Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. You now I realize that we always introduce ourselves, but we already have an intro, so I don't even know why we even do that. It's like Andy Richter introduces Conan O'Brien and he walks in and says, I'm Conan O'Brien and this is the, this is the whatever this show is called. It's because last week it was just me, so sometimes it is different. Oh, that's true. That's true. Well, let's start our show. What do we have, Matt? Welcome back, first of all. It's good to have you back after last week it was just me. We'll see if our chemistry is still here after taking a couple of weeks off. I know. I definitely missed the podcast, but I think last week's episode, and I'm not even being funny about it, it was, I think, our best episode. Obviously, it was a compilation of our best moments, but it was truly a really nice review of the last 20 episodes. It was actually pretty fun going back and listening to him again, too, because there's a lot of stuff that I forgot that we even talked about. It's a nice little stroll down memory lane. <laughs> We're not that old yet. <laughs> well, for the podcast, yeah. All right, enough of that. We'll get into the first story we have for this week, and this has gotten a lot of publicity. So I'm sure anyone that's been breathing, I guess, in this last week has heard about this selfie that was taken at the Oscars. I actually didn't see the Oscars. Well, I I could take that back. I saw the end of it, but I didn't see this part. Well, it's funny. I probably watched five minutes, and this is the only part that I saw. So I'm ready. (laughs) Good. Well, Ellen was the host, and I guess she did this thing where she did a lot of crowd work, and she went into the crowd, and she had a phone, and she, I guess you can correct me if I'm wrong on exactly how this happened. She handed it to Bradley Cooper, and they took a selfie of a bunch of people. I think there's about, uh, like, looks like 10 of them, and a bunch of high-profile celebrities. But this picture, and she put it up on Twitter, and I think last time I checked, it had over 3.3 million retweets, which is just shattering whatever the previous record was. I think the previous record was Obama's tweet when he said four more years, I believe. I, I could be wrong on that. Oh. I don't even realize that it gained so much popularity. In fact, when I saw it, it was almost awkward because Ellen's holding one of those huge Samsung phones, so it was basically a Samsung ad placement. And then she's taking pictures and then having people get together. And the picture turned out nice. But for me, it was just a very awkward moment with like celebrities that didn't know what was going on. It doesn't look like they were in on it either because their expression looked pretty natural. But they're saying, who owns this photo? Yeah. The story that's coming out this week is Bradley Cooper. Since he was the photographer, he owns the photo, according to copyright law. Yeah. And if you think about it, Ellen's the one that is the owner of the phone. Well, supposedly it may not even be hers. And then she hands it to Mr. Bradley Cooper, who's apparently an actor. And he's the one who actually takes the photo. And so this is equivalent to a photographer that, I don't know, rents a camera or borrows a camera and and goes out and for a photo shoot, who owns the photo? Is it the participants or is it the photographer or is it the owner of the camera? Very classic situation, but we already know the answer. According to the law, it's it's Bradley Cooper. But there's some other theories that have been thrown out there. They're saying there's some co-authorship principle where Bradley would have the ownership, but also Ellen would too because it's her phone. Well, we assume it's her phone. Seems like it might not be. And she also directed Bradley Cooper to take the photo. So the story is kind of funny because it's kind of pointless. But it is a good way to bring up intellectual property law. Oh, that's true. I, I think it's a losing argument as far as the co-authorship. But I mean, it's almost bringing out a non-issue, but it's pointing out something interesting, like you said. We addressed Bradley Cooper and Ellen. and they, Some other people talked about Samsung because I guess Ellen 
I guess all the photos she took backstage were with an iPhone, which I assume would be hers. And the only time she had the Samsung was when she was in the crowd. So this is a clear product placement. Oh, yeah. So they talked about that. People had talked about Twitter because it got posted to Twitter. That's where it gained all the popularity of almost three and a half million retweets. It's a lot of different theories. The smartest move, and they may have already done this, Samsung, what they could have done is in their engagement with Ellen or the Academy, whoever their contract is with for these product placements, is to put in some work for hire language so that any images that are taken with that Samsung camera could be owned by them. But the problem is if Bradley is taking it, then he may not have a direct contract and he probably does it with Samsung or anyone else for that matter. And so how that would translate actually could get into a little bit of a mess. And because I think you're right in the sense that this photo does have some inherent value. So there is something there as far as a legal dispute if they're if someone wanted to make it. Yeah, that's the big thing too is Ellen and Samsung could have had some agreement, but they don't have anything with Bradley Cooper. So kind of throws everything yeah. into a loop. But this is actually good because this bleeds into our first question here. Unless you have any gripes about any of the Oscar selections, we can just get into the first question. <laughs> no, I, I am anxious to see some of the best picture winners, though. Yeah, well, that's the problem is I don't see movies in theaters, so I don't see any of these movies until well down the road. Yeah, well, a lot of these best pictures always seem to come out right before the Oscars, so most people haven't even had a chance to view them. And so it obviously gains its popularity that way as well. Yeah, and people can listen when we do our weekly movie review podcast, too. Yeah. <laughs> Legally sounds smart movies. Terrible title. <laughs> Terrible title. All right. First question. One of my staff is using some of the work he's creating while at the office to sell outside of work. My understanding is I own it. Is this right? And this comes from an ad agency in San Francisco. Yeah, you're right. This does play into it. Maybe we did that on purpose, or at least you did. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends whether he or she says staff. I assume that means employee because there's a big difference. If it's an employee, then the assumption is that you basically own the works of your employee. But if it's not an employee, an independent contractor, then you have this whole concept of a work for hire agreement. Right. It kind of turns on the word staff in this question. You would assume it's an employee, yeah. but it might be an independent contractor. So if that's the case... It depends on the work they're doing, I suppose, as well, on what's going to be considered work for hire and what's not. Assuming there's some sort of agreement, I guess that comes into play too. But the type of work also is a factor. Yeah, absolutely. And here's the deal too, is the copyright law literally has not been updated since, I don't know, I think the last time it was updated in, the, I want to say the 70s. And yeah, in fact, it's the Copyright Act of 1976. It may have been updated one or two times very subtly. But think about this concept is that the internet didn't exist back then. A lot of things didn't exist back then. And so the problem is copyright law is still old. So when it comes to like, for example, programming and different things like that, you may have a copyright, but when it comes to work for hire, they've limited the types of works that can be fallen to work for hire. It's like, for example, collective works and uh, writings or sanctioned paintings, things like that. And so a lot of times these simple work for hire contracts don't even work and you need additional language that requires the independent contractor to assign their work to the employer. And I'm only bringing this about because in this case, this person's in an ad agency. So I don't know what kind of work they're referring to, 
But simply using just some template work for hire agreement sometimes is not enough to actually retain the ownership of what you're trying to maintain. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then you mentioned a couple collective work, things of that nature. But yeah, it doesn't address really anything that would ever be relevant to, well, some stuff, but it was created before the internet was really a thing, a test answer material for a test. These are two of the nine options on here, an atlas. So they definitely need some sort of revamp on this. Exactly. And sometimes a collective work can be construed for a software application, but a lot of times you're outsourcing your entire software app, right? And there's no software or application exception or category for work for hire for an independent contract. But the next time I do an atlas, which is one of the categories, I'll definitely make sure to just do a simple work for hire contract. I had a road atlas in my car that I threw away this week that's been in there for at least 10 years. And I just saw it the other day and I was like, and I, there's hardly anything in my car, but this is one of the few things. And I was just sitting here, why? I was like, why do I even need this anymore? Everything's on the phone. I can pull up a much better version of whatever this is in this huge book in one second. So I actually, I guess I used to use it when I drove around the country, but now it's just pointless. I used to love maps, but if you're traveling outside the country, you actually have to know how to use it because those GPS phones aren't going to work the same way. That's true. Unless you have a Samsung. Oh, that's true. Sponsored (laughs) by Samsung. All right. Let's get into the next story we have. This is uh, Almeida County, California. So I guess food trucks are still pretty popular. They're huge. I think the fads died down, but I think it's something that's here to stay because it's such an easy way to prop up a business overnight. And if you have good so-called gourmet food, then I I think you'll attract some nice customers. Yeah. And that's the thing you hit on the, if you have the gourmet food, but this is, (laughs) so this story deals with a, I guess it's a food truck and catering business and they're facing criminal charges because basically they were doing fraudulent things. We advertised we were getting fresh crab daily, just like the shrimp. And that was all shrimp that was frozen from Costco. So that's pretty bad. But they were also buying food from fast food restaurants. <laughs> Some of the food they were giving out to people. This is, this is just ridiculous. And Yeah. And they were advertising fresh homemade clam chowder. And all it was was canned. We buy from Ranch 99. I don't know what that is, but canned clam chowder compared to fresh homemade. Obviously, they got caught. I mean people are going to notice. Yeah, I guess you could tell the difference. So my view of food trucks is a little bit different. I used to really like them and think they were really cool. And then throughout time, I've just realized it's pretty much the same thing you can get at, a, well, not a lot of restaurants, but there's enough other spots you can find them, but it's cheaper than food trucks because food trucks have to mark up their prices because they're using so much gas. I guess other places have rent. You think it's more expensive though? I mean, I, I agree though, those food trucks aren't necessarily cheap food, but I still think it would be cheaper than a brick and mortar place. Yeah. I mean, I I thought about that as I was just saying it right now, but I still think (laughs) it it really, it dawned on me as I was saying that there's also uh, rent and other overhead expenses for, you know, normal restaurants. But I guess in my experience of food, I guess the, the quality you can get and the, the quantity and quality, it seems like it's always more expensive at food trucks than it is at a normal not a sit-down restaurant, but a restaurant. I don't know. I'm backing myself into a hole here. I don't. I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> no, but I know what you're saying. Like, I think they used to be when they first came out, they were pretty cool. But now there's so many, and yeah. so it's kind of hit or miss now that it's hard to find the good ones from the bad. And now it's just like all the good ones are being drowned out by everyone else. And even restaurants now are propping these things up because. 
when you have like a food court of food trucks, then you don't want to lose that business. But let's get back to the story. I mean, you have these guys that are basically false advertising. And the fact that they've actually been charged with criminal charges kind of gives the extent of how bad they were doing this. Because this is also something that may come from regulatory perspective and maybe get them fined. But I think they're actually subject to jail time here. Yeah, it will be interesting. I I don't obviously have done fraudulent things, but it's just weird because there's other businesses that have done much more fraudulent things. And I mean, this, like I said, this is definitely bad, but I mean, you really think they're going to get some sort of jail time? No, I'm just hoping so. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because I just went to Seattle last week and I had fresh clam chowder there and I enjoyed it very much. But if someone told me they were actually canned, not only would I be embarrassed but also uh, very upset. I've been to Seattle. I've been to Portland. I know Portland has that whole area of food trucks and food carts. I don't know if, I can't remember if Seattle has a similar thing or if that's just, I don't want to group all the Northwest into one, but it seems to, they always, <laughs> Portland and Seattle are very similar cities in my view, but. Yeah, I haven't been to Portland, so I can't speak to it. I'm just really backing myself into a lot of different holes in this story here. <laughs> you do not want to piss off anyone from Seattle. That's for sure. I've been to both and I liked both the cities. So it's not, I'm not saying anything bad. I was just wondering. Okay. I know this is not our break, but just to kind of skip to it really quick is that one of the stories we covered in our last, uh, in fact, on the best of episode last week was the 12th man. And I'll tell you, the 12th man really does exist in Seattle. My wife and I were at a comedy show, Lisa Lampanelli. She was all right. But the point is, is that for the couple of comedians beforehand, you know, they would mention just like Seattle or the Seahawks and then the crowd of like maybe two or 300 people, probably actually three, three or 400, they would go crazy and they wouldn't even let the comedian finish. It was like ridiculous, <laughs> but they were way into it. A little bit, it was almost uh, jarring to kind of be in that hall and, and all of a sudden everyone's just shouting out, God knows what, something about football. Well, they're still celebrating the Super Bowl win. I, that was, come on, that was weeks month. ago. It's like, I'm, I'm. <laughs> They should be over it by now. I mean, I know people from Seattle, and I know it's it's a real thing. They're diehard fans, but well, it's because they have they have anything else to do besides go out to restaurants and watch football, and <laughs> because there's not good weather there, I'll tell you that. Uh, we had some good weather, but yeah. if you get lucky. All right, uh, we'll get into our next question. That's not from Seattle. It's from Fresno, California. <laughs> I'm going from a home office to renting a space. What should I look for in a commercial lease? Well, that's a nice transition. Uh, you know, a lot of businesses, they start out working from home and then now you're ready to actually rent an office space. And I think there's a couple main things to look out for. First is, especially if you're in California and this person's in Fresno, when you have a residential lease, there's all these protections that are given to tenants. And those protections are not the same for commercial tenants. In fact, most of them go away. There are some few in there that are exceptional to California only, but I think that's the big thing that you don't have the same kind of automatic protection. So that's why a little bit closer reading to the lease is a little bit more important. And then second, I think one big new thing is that even if you're operating under an entity, whether it's a corporation, LLC, etc., most likely you're going to be a new business. And so they're going to require you to sign what's called a personal guarantee. And that means that you as an individual are going to guarantee the rent, whether or not you're operating under an entity, which obviously that's one of the reasons you form the entity to protect you from liability. But in this case, you're basically waiving that right. 
And so sometimes that can be a little bit of a difference. And that's why they're still going to look at the credit of you as an individual and your history and so forth, depending upon the amount that you're paying. Right. And the way I approach this question is if this person's looking for a commercial lease, I assume that they've at least signed a residential lease at one point in their life. So the way I view it is what's different in those leases than a commercial lease? And you hit on a couple of good ones there. The term in a commercial lease is most likely going to be longer than any residential lease you'll sign. I would assume, because they want to lock people in long term. It's going to be more negotiable too. For residential leases, at least what I've experienced, is people kind of present you with, this is it, this is the price, and you either sign up or you don't. With commercial leases, you have some wiggle room. It's more flexible than a normal residential lease you would sign. I forgot one important thing is CAMS, the common area maintenance fees. I think this is probably the most surprising. It's an item in which if you're not experienced in this industry, that it can be very surprising, especially to your bottom line. And that is basically a lot of times, most commercial leases are what's called triple net, that you're going to be paying for all property taxes and maintenance for the property and in proportion to the space that you're renting. And a lot of times this amount is an additional to your rent. And a lot of times how these CAM expenses are described are a little convoluted. Sometimes it'll be a fixed fee. Sometimes it'll be based upon actual expenses from the landlord, or it'll be based upon a percentage or a certain price per foot. And there's multiple ways to do it. But not only is it sometimes of a hidden cost in renting, but then it also changes year by year as well. Or it'll be a one-time fee. Sometimes these CAM fees are paid within the monthly rent, or maybe they're paid quarterly or even yearly. And so these are all things that are totally foreign to any residential lease because usually you know what your security deposit is and your rent and then you're done and yeah, you have to pay some utilities. But with uh, common area maintenance expenses in a triple net commercial lease, it's a totally different uh, ballgame. And another thing I I just thought of too is the restrictions. So a couple things. One would be, you know, what kind of sign are you allowed to put up or what exactly can you put up to show that your business is there? And two, and I think this is a big one, is competition. Yeah. Exclusivity. If you're in a strip mall example, sometimes there's clauses in there saying this would be in favor of the business with something that you can negotiate saying, you know, I don't want another nail salon in there. And so this lease might say you will be the only nail salon within this allotted area. And that's something that you can do as a business that would be pretty beneficial. So that brings up the point that these things are very highly negotiable. So even things that are not typical to a commercial lease can be negotiated. And so you have to also know what your bargaining power is and how big of a tenant you are compared to the rest of the property. And you'd be very pleased to find out that you have a lot of wiggle room. And even with tenant improvements, for example, and you know, maybe when you're just first starting out going from a home office to a commercial space, maybe you're going to a smaller area. But as you grow, then you have some nice negotiation power. It's kind of a nice fresh change once you get to that point. Yeah, to go back and look to make sure they didn't write the business type in there when I use that nail salon example. So I'm glad they didn't. <laughs> we'll just assume that was it. I think we offered a lot of <laughs> good advice on that one, more than I was expecting. But <laughs> we, we answered that better than we were expecting. That's good. We already kind of did the break, unless you have anything else. No, but Seattle was fun. And I don't mean to make fun of it too much, but that was very surprising to hear about. And I, I saw the 12th man signs everywhere too. And we even covered this. When that lease goes up, I don't know how all these business owners or something like that, they're going to have to take it down because then I don't think they have a license to it. 
Yeah, do you remember when that was expiring? I think they they're just renewing it or the negotiations. Yeah, so it's pretty soon. I think it was expiring a year or two from now, very soon, and we'll keep up with it. Texas A and M can pretty much name their price. I'm guessing. So yeah, it will be interesting. So this deals with Getty Images, and it looks like they just pretty much gave up. At least with some photos, Getty Images is just deciding that what is it? Thirty five million of its photos are just going to be free because. It sounds like they just gave up. They just can't do any enforcement action anymore. Too much to handle. Well, I think everyone has this experience. You go on the internet and you end up seeing the same photo like in five different places. I'm talking about those old stock photos of some business guy sitting at a desk or, or, or whatever, right? And Or the same guy. It's like been circulating for the last five, 10 years and so forth. And I think those are the photos that they're talking about. I think the best move that they made is that, and one of the stories that we reviewed covered this, is that you can actually, what they do now is embed the actual photo from that site. So instead of copying and pasting, you actually paste, I think, some code into it, and then it has a little caption that says it's from Getty Images and so forth. And I think what's neat about that is that now Getty Images is kind of taking control over the source material, and since they're giving it away for free, they're adapting to the fact that people are going to steal it anyway. Well, if they're going to do that, let's at least make sure that we get credit for it and that maybe we can turn this into a moneymaker by slipping in ads or something like that. Right. And that was the free images in quotes because it is embedded. So it's a little bit different, but they tried some other things too. It looks like they tried a watermark before, but I guess there's ways to circumvent that through, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but there's ways to get around that. And just tried a bunch of different things. I, I guess this leads to how are they going to... They were talking about how they were going to make money off of this. How are they going to generate revenue? And they were looking kind of in the the YouTube model with uh, having ads on there, which I guess I've noticed more recently if you see... I'm guessing this is how they would do it. You see a photo and then a little ad, a little rectangle comes up at the bottom. Yeah. I guess that's how they would do it. I'm... Or maybe something pops up in front of the photo for 10 seconds or something like that. But And I think for bloggers and all these uh, online publishers, I don't, I don't think they'll mind because finding good photos, and even we have trouble sometimes too, is finding good photos to match what you're covering and not having it cost too much is not easy to do. And so I think it's a good play. It, it reminds me of all these other online publishers, whether it's music or movies that are adjusting to the fact that, okay, people are going to steal it. It's much better to give it to them the way that we want to and control that than to have it on the black market, so to speak. And that's why places like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu are are doing so well because they're streaming it maybe for free or for a nominal fee. So do you think this is bad for photographers as well? Because now they might not be able to sell photos to Getty like they would in the past? Well, I think the internet is a problem for the photographers, right? Because once it's published one place, then it's very easy for anyone else to copy it. But if you give a means to do this, because all this means is that instead of your photo being stolen and maybe sold once and then stolen many times over, you're selling your photograph probably for a lot less, but then at least you have more of a market and more of a consistent means of a marketplace. I guess that's the argument because people are going to steal it no matter what. I know I am. <laughs> I've been stealing photos left and right throughout this whole episode. <laughs> and they will be posted on our website, LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. And we'll be waiting for the copyright infringement lawsuits and demand letters. Yeah. 
let's get into the last question here for this week. If I have a client that won't pay their bill, do I have a better chance of winning if I go to small claims court over normal court? This is someone from Anaheim, California. The dispute's about an unpaid bill. Okay, so if I have a client that won't pay their bill, so small claims versus, quote, normal court. Well, in California, there are three types of jurisdiction. This gets into some fun legal talk, but there's small claims, and then there's limited jurisdiction and unlimited jurisdiction. And so bottom line is that small claims is the most fast proceedings, easiest, simplest, but it also has a limit, I think, for, I think they increased it a couple of years ago. Do you even remember what's at right now? It looks like if you're an individual, it's $10,000 or less. And then for a corporation? If you're a business, it's $5,000 okay. or less. So that's not even that much money. I mean, for a business, $5,000 might not be anything at all. And even though it increased from 7500 to 10000 for individuals, it was $5,000 before. So that hasn't changed. And the reasoning is, is this, is that they feel that, okay, if you're a business and you're in court, then you have more of the means and the ability to pursue your damages in regular court. Because here's the thing, in small claims, you can't have an attorney, at least in California, and it's just one hearing. There's no jury. It's kind of loosey-goosey when it comes to presenting the evidence. You even don't have that much time to present evidence and so forth. Because, I mean, frankly, the matter, we're not talking about a huge amount of money. And so this person's asking, okay, my client's not paying their bill. What do I do? Small claims, what's my better chance? It's kind of hard to say, but in small claims court, you have to understand that it's much easier to litigate. And so your costs are way down. However, the risk of winning or losing I think this is kind of a debatable question, but I think most attorneys would say that small claims is a little bit more unpredictable because the evidence rules are as strict, whereas it's a little bit more predictable in a limited or unlimited jurisdiction because, okay, you have more experienced judges that are going to follow the law. In my opinion, I think it's a flip of the coin either way. No, obviously cost comes into play, but to me... If you're a business person and you are going to represent yourself very well and the person you're going against is not and they're going to come off really poorly, I would just go to small claims court because you're going to look a lot better. You don't want to give the other side the opportunity to hire an attorney and you lose that advantage of you being able to present your argument a lot more fluently than they would. That's my take. I agree with you in the sense of about cost. If as a business, if 5000 is your limit and let's say that the client owes you $6,000, and I would not sue for $6,000. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, are you going to hire an attorney for that amount of money? I mean, that's that might be your legal cost, right? And so I would just go to small claims for something like that. It's a whole other question about whether you should sue your client in the first place, though. Yeah, that's true. Even if you win, you always have to worry about collecting it. So that's another issue. Another issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, should I answer this question? Don't take on bad clients. That's what I should have said from the beginning. Yeah, that's true. And litigation is your last resort. In my mind especially from a business perspective, you should only be initiating a lawsuit unless the lawsuit itself is going to be in your favor as well, in the sense that you have the cash and that you have a high likelihood of success. Or sometimes you have to file a lawsuit because you're forced into it, because if you don't, then you may, you're covering your losses, so to speak. And right. I think that's a general rule. When it comes to individuals that are suing in personal injury and all this like that, I mean, that's been glamorized on the media, but it's you're in a different position. You're a business, and so you have to make calculated risk decisions, which is very difficult to do when you feel like you've been wrong. For example, if your client doesn't pay you when you provided the service or product. Yeah, you nailed it. Good job. Thank you again.
All right, let's get into the last story this week. And we're not going to talk about the one teenager who's been in the news for a lawsuit this week with the girl who sued her parents. Yeah, I'm so glad we're not covering that. That's just melodrama. That's been overblown. So we're going to talk about another teenager dealing with their parents, but this is a little bit different. So this girl, her, I guess her dad was involved in a, a lawsuit and there was a settlement for, now we know, $80,000 against the school. Is that correct? I'm trying to remember. An employer was, but I thought it was the school. Yeah, I think it was a school for an age discrimination lawsuit. So there was a settlement for $80,000. You know, that's great. Got the collection, the settlement, usually confidential. So this girl goes on to Facebook and posts, her last name is Snay, by the way, because that'll be relevant. Mama and Papa Snay won the case against Gulliver, which is the school. Gulliver is now officially paying for my vacation to Europe this summer. Suck it, in all caps. Uh, (laughs) Well, first of all, that's a great update, by the way. That's very well worded. Uh, So this violated the settlement agreement, and now her father's at risk of losing this money. I don't remember if this already violated it completely and he lost it, or he's at least in danger of now breaking this settlement agreement. (laughs) Yeah. So settlement agreements almost always have this clause to make it confidential. Right. But you know what's interesting is that when I get clients in this situation, a lot of times they go into it not for the money, so to speak. At least they, they say they don't, but it's for their principal and so forth. And, and of course, I tell them, look, you know, if you're going in for principal, it's not going to work out that way because the justice system is only going to award you money. And that's it. You're not going to get an apology and so forth. But then a lot of times, too, you can actually negotiate this confidentiality part out. And sometimes people want a public apology or be able to say to the public that, yeah, I sued this people because they did something wrong and they settled out of it. And sometimes that's worth quite a bit for the clients. And I respect that for those people. And obviously, okay, age discrimination lawsuit, $80,000. You have a settlement agreement that you're supposed to keep confidential. You breach it. Well, I mean... That's what's going to happen. You're going to lose that settlement. Yeah, this is a little bit interesting because I'm trying to think if this happened to me, I probably wouldn't tell my kid, hey, I won the settlement. We settled for this amount of dollars, especially when she knows what the school is. I don't know. I would just say we settled. And I guess that was mistake number one. Yeah. Let me clarify. Mistake number one was having the daughter. And then mistake number two (laughs) was telling her. No, just kidding. Yeah. it's uh, Well, it's an expensive mistake. That's for sure. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's this is tough. And this is just, I mean, this happens all the time with a lot of teenagers are the primary culprits, but it's it's really any age. But people just get on social media and just, you know, say whatever they want to say, which you got to think before you, you post. And we can relate this into businesses too. If someone gives you a bad review, don't get on there and just blast them right away, You know, you, especially when you're a business. Everything you post on social media, you have to think before you post it. I would recommend even having someone that needs to approve everything you want to post just so you have a second opinion, someone that you consider the VP of common sense. <laughs> even for personal posts, right? I mean, I think that's a great service that, <laughs> that you can go through. It's just, okay, just hire someone. Okay, I'm going to post throughout the day and then it's going to be held there and you have to approve it or disapprove it just in case it might be ridiculous. That's not a bad idea. And we're, I mean, we're recording this a few days before it comes out. So we can start this business right now. And then by the time this podcast goes up on Monday, we'll already have it started and have a heads up on anyone that wants to try to take this idea from us. <laughs> That's true. So we need to think of a name like uh, status review. I bet you someone's doing it though. Yeah, probably. All right. Well, I think that's it, right? Unless you had anything else. 
I think that's it. Very good. That was our 21st episode. Did we tell people? We told people? I don't remember. Ask. At, we, we didn't even introduce the podcast, right? So. <laughs> it was a cold open. Yeah. So this show is called Legally Sound Smart Business, in case you, you weren't aware what you're listening to. And my name is Nasser Pasha. And this is Matt Staub. <laughs> this is a reverse episode. <laughs> it's like the Seinfeld episode that's in reverse. And you yeah. it's confusing. With the wedding in India. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so you can send in your legal questions like these other listeners did at ask at legallysoundsmartbusiness.com. And this is also a podcast where we cover business in the news and give our legal twist. And hopefully you can hear from us next week as well. Yeah. Lucky 21. Drinking age. Well, I was thinking more blackjack, but. (laughs) I know. I don't even drink too. (laughs) I just, I'm a big gambler though. I was doing the impression of you. All right. Before this gets too out of hand, keep it sound and keep it smart. Have a good one. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Staub. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. This is someone from Anaheim, California. We don't know what the dispute's about, it looks like. So, oh, I guess, no, I don't know why I said that. We do. It's an unpaid bill. (laughs) We don't know anything except uh, what the client told us.